Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 182. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jujitsu approach. And today, got a first-timer, someone I've been looking forward to talking to for a while, Mr. Brandon McCaffron. Brandon, how are you doing? What's happening, Steve? Thanks for having me on, man. (laughs) You are most welcome. I am doing well. Hope you're doing well also. Now, you probably are known to the majority of our listeners, but just in case, why don't you go ahead and give yourself a quick introduction? Yeah, for sure. So, I'm Brandon. I'm a 10th Planet Black Belt under Eddie. I got all my jiu-jitsu ranks from Eddie. I live out here in Decatur, Alabama, 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu in Decatur, which is a small little town in North Alabama, but pretty pretty good little jiu-jitsu scene, to be honest with you. So tough training room, a lot of good people on the floor, and yeah, I just, I'm a jiu-jitsu dork. I do commentary for combat jiu-jitsu, a couple of MMA shows, stuff like that. Well, you know, it seems to me then you would be the ideal person to talk shop with about jujitsu. And that's what I love to do here. So something I wanted to dig in and explore, something that I am admittedly quite ignorant about is the rubber guard. Now, if there's anyone that we've had on the show who's going to be qualified to explain this thing, it's you. I can explain my experience with the rubber guard. Like I think everyone in my generation, when I started jujitsu, rubber guard was just kind of becoming a thing, of course, due to the UFC and Joe Rogan and Eddie Bravo, it was becoming popularized. I played around with it very briefly early in my white belt days, but it just never really stuck with me. I moved on to other things, but I hear a lot of things about the rubber guard and I am absolutely not an expert in the system, but it's something I've always wanted to to understand and explore. I've certainly been stuck in people's rubber guards and it's never a good time. So what I would love to do is maybe pick your brain and just get an explanation of what it is. You know, not so much from a, okay, where where does the arm, where does the leg go? I think everyone who listens to this probably can visualize it. If you've ever watched, uh, especially early days UFC fights, you've probably seen a lot of rubber guard attempts. But why don't you go ahead and just give me the quick introduction to someone who's maybe familiar with jiu-jitsu, but not so familiar with the 10th planet system. How do you introduce rubber guard to someone like myself? Well, the main thing to think about with the rubber guard is that it's a way to stifle your opponent's striking offense and still present offensive options yourself. So that's kind of how the concept started. So, you know, Eddie was trying to think of a way to keep playing off of his back during MMA, but still be offensive, you know, trying to control somebody by just controlling their wrist when they can just circle over and elbow you in the face is not the optimal, like throwing pop triangles and stuff like that. just doesn't work out usually, you know? And so Eddie's whole idea was, how can I come up with a system where I can control this guy, stop him from punching me, but not just stall? 
right? And so that was where the original, like that was the seed of the rubber guard was that idea. But really, you could just think about the rubber guard in your beginning stages as an intricate omoplata setup, if nothing mm-hmm. else. So that's where I'll usually start someone. So, oh, Brandon, I'm, I'm really interested in learning how to play the rubber guard. All right, well, let's start right here. We're going to make sure that this posture is under control, and then we're going to get to this omoplata using these steps. Awesome. Yeah, I find, especially as I, you know, as I get more experienced, the the people out there who know what they're doing, it's very hard to hold someone's posture down, especially in a no-gi environment. I mean, not even getting into striking an MMA, but good folks don't let you hold them down in the guard. So it always becomes a challenge of what can you explore if you want to play closed guard that will actually keep your opponent there and reasonably control their posture. I play a lot of gi. In the gi, you have some good options where you basically pull the person's lapel behind their back and rubber guard works on a very similar principle except that instead of tying a person up with their pajamas you're tying them up with basically your own leg i'm not really sure what the best way to describe it would be to someone who's never seen it before but basically the idea is instead of trying to just cross your ankles in a traditional clothes guard and trying to hold a person there you're basically grabbing and pulling and holding onto your own leg and latching them in place that way so that kind of clamping structure is what holds them in place it's one of um, a few very select no-gi guards that work well at holding a person's posture in a broken state which is very very hard to do in no-gi does that sound like a fair explanation of rubber guard for the uninformed yeah that's a good good place to start with it for sure I would hesitate to classify it as a closed guard system, though, because honestly, like when I'm playing it with like when I'm trying to take advantage of the best people that I roll with, it usually just comes from an overhook somewhere. So or from you being a little overzealous in your hunt for an underhook during your passing. So most of my rubber guard setups these days come off of like a Z guard or a shield or a butterfly guard or a half butter even. Interesting. So you classified this primarily as a, I'm not sure if you would really technically call it an open guard. I would classify it as an overhook guard, I guess. Right. So it's, there's two things that you have to absolutely monitor or your rubber guard's going to fall apart. You got to monitor the hug on your knee. So the, the leg that you're bringing up around their neck, you've got to hug that knee on the same side, your knee on that same side so that they can't just limp their arm out of there for free. So it's hugging the knee at an angle. That's a very important part of it, hugging the knee at an angle. And then on the other side, you're trying to make sure that you, whoever dominates the inside space there is going to win that rubber guard battle. So if you're starting to beat, so let's say I'm playing with my left leg up high and you're trying to pass over to my right side. If you can beat my right knee and, you know, shove it through to like a half guard position, then I should have let go of the rubber guard already and started making a better angle or moving on to something a little more efficient. One thing that I never want to do is I never want to pull on my foot. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about this because I think this is where a lot of people basically dip their toes into the water with the 10th planet system and then immediately withdraw and never look at it again, which is that there is a perception and an understandable perception that the rubber guard is very flexibility based. And I've definitely made this mistake experimenting with the rubber guard, same as I've made this mistake with the triangle choke where I grab my own foot and I try to pull it and use that to close the space. But the problem with doing that is you're putting a lot of torque on 
on your own knee, right? So all it takes then is a big explosive movement from your opponent and there goes your leg. So I think that's probably where one of the myths, I don't know if it's a myth or if it's true, but one of the the common concerns with the rubber guard comes up, which is, oh, well, it's a very flexibility based guard and it's risky for the health of your knee. But then again, I don't know if that's entirely true. And I'd love to get your perspective on if there's ways to mitigate that concern. Yeah, well, that's the number one thing you have to avoid letting your new students do as they're, or maybe they're not even new, they're just new to the rubber guard. You know, like we were working on some stuff earlier this week from the rubber guard and getting that foot over on the other side of the head. And the natural instinct is just grab that foot and start pulling on it to, like, oh, I don't have the space for it, but if I'll just jam my foot in there, <laughs> you know, and, and that's not, that's not jujitsu. That's, that's not, and I'm not saying it's not grappling. I'm not saying it won't work sometimes. But it's a uh, forcing my way onto you is it doesn't follow the essence and the spirit of jujitsu, right? So for me, when I'm teaching a new student, if they're starting to yank on that foot, pause, stop. I want you to control that overhook and control this posture. Put your foot on the ground and just give me a couple of hips out. Just hip out a couple of times and then run the same process and notice that you can do it without yanking on your foot now. Interesting. So you're kind of explaining this in the sense of, and you mentioned this already earlier, you're explaining this in the sense of it's basically a fancy omoplata setup because I don't play the rubber guard a lot, but I do play the omoplata a lot. And that is exactly the same first detail that I give to people is if you want to get the omoplata, you generally want to get an overhook and you want to get onto your side and kind of hip out so that you're attacking the guy while you're basically attacking him sideways. So he's not really facing you directly anymore. And it sounds like you're kind of advocating for a similar thing with the rubber guard as well. Hundred percent, hundred percent. There's other ways to play the rubber guard, like getting into the dead orchard, which is you know something we can talk about in a little bit if you want. I feel like the dead orchard's probably the technique from the rubber guard that's being used the most at a you know decent to high level at this stage. But most of my rubber guard play happens on that omoplata side, so I think of it as just like an intricate omoplata setup. But the thing that I like about the rubber guard, and to me, is like this is just proof of concept. If I wrap you up in my rubber guard and I force and, and I get to an omoplata and I force you to roll and I end up sweeping you, right? To me, I feel like I messed up right there. I should have killed you while I had you in there. And to me, that's like the most obvious proof that the rubber guard is one of the best guards to play. Because what other guard are you upset that you swept the guy <laughs> instead of putting him away? You know, you're like, oh, I'm very pleased that I ended up with this sweep. But with the rubber guard, I'm like, man, I let him off the hook. I shouldn't have had to go to that omoplata right there. Yeah, you know, that's something that we've talked about in the context of attacks from guard, which is that for a lot of attacks from guard, the worst case scenario for you as the attacker is often not good. You know, if you're on the bottom and you try an arm bar from the bottom, the worst case scenario is the guy on top stacks you and then smash passes you. Or if you try a triangle and you fail, I mean, depending on the rule set, the worst case scenario is you get picked up and you get slammed. But if slams aren't legal, then again, you can just get stacked past. Whereas with the omoplata, 
often if you fail the omoplata, what's going to wind up happening is you still wind up getting the sweep. And that's a pretty good plan B, right? With a lot of the other submissions from guard, plan B is you've just been passed. With the omoplata, a lot of the time, a failed omoplata results in, okay, now I'm on top. Maybe I'm on top in side control even. This is good, right? To have that as your fallback option. So I think that the omoplata is a great tool for most people to have in their closed guard repertoire. And I can see how, like you're saying, it can tie in nicely to the rubber guard, especially if you've got that overhook. And it's probably worth talking about this. I mean, it's to me, it's pretty obvious why, but maybe it's worth asking. What is your reasoning for why holding the overhook is so important? Like, why would you not go for rubber guard just from a more traditional position where you don't have overhook control? It just doesn't allow for me to have as a good angle. You know, I can't hang my weight on the guy in the same way. I'm relying on holding on to like a clinch with that foot. So like say, for those that may be familiar with at least the terminology and the steps of the rubber guard, let's say I have you in closed guard and I break your posture and your hands are on my chest, right? I'm flat on my back. Your posture is broken and your hands are on my chest. The first step that's normally taught with the rubber guard is, you know, hip out just a little bit and get that foot and hug the knee. And they call that mission control. Generally speaking, I skip that part entirely. If somebody's not throwing punches, I basically never play that position. It ends with me flat on my back, or it begins with me flat on my back, you know? So a lot of times, it's just not, the juice is not worth the squeeze. But an overhook, if I have an overhook, you have an underhook, right? Well, if you're passing, you want that underhook, especially if I'm like, putting together a little Z or I'm laying a trap that makes you feel like this is the correct thing to do is I'm just going to get a little overzealous and reach for that underhook a little bit. It's right there. I think I can take it. And that's the moment that I, I try to skip as many steps as possible and just get deep into the rubber guard. Yeah. You know, that's something that I have noticed about a lot of the traditional 10th planet positions as well, which is that you often, and when I say, I mean, I don't want to generalize too much, but this is how I think of traditional rubber guard and also traditional lockdown. Just you wind up in a situation where you're clamped pretty tightly onto your opponent, but you're flat on your back with your shoulders on the ground. And yes, you can stall and slow down an opponent from that position, but it's hard to advance position when your own shoulders are pinned to the mat and you're kind of the person holding yourself there. So I I like this idea of attacking the rubber guard kind of at an angle, because in addition to solving that problem of how do I not blow out my knee, it also solves the problem of how do I get to my side so that I'm not just holding this person on top of me, but I can't also move myself from the bottom. Yeah. I mean, I can try to get to my side and get to an overhook, or I can just kind of let you do what you're naturally going to do as a guard passer and come on down here close and take an underhook and if I'm already hipped out or I hip out in the right moment, it's going to be hard for you to stop me from at least getting my my rubber guard position set up. Now, you know, what happens from there depends, I guess, on the interaction that you and I have, but it's going to be hard for you to stop me from at least making an attempt at a good play right there. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, I, I would ask here. When would you suggest the rubber guard? I mean, I'm sure it's not something you would suggest as a tool to solve every problem, but what are the situations where rubber guard is the right answer as opposed to going to, I don't know, Sean Williams guard or some sort of lapel thing? Like, what are the uh, the triggers where you would say, okay, this is the right time to go for the rubber guard? Is it just as simple as the person gets that underhook on you? Or is there anything else that really lends itself well to opening up and entering into the rubber guard? Yeah, so generally speaking, the way it 
plays out for me, like, let's say I'm setting this up from like a, a knee shield, let's say. All right, so I'm on my right hip. I'm playing my knee shield. Left knee is the shield. And you're starting to kind of want to overpower me and come into that space. If I drop that shield out as you reach for the underhook, I've got a nice overhook right there. If at the same time I can win that inside space with my knee on the right side, then that's when I'm going to start thinking about pulling the leg up and making a play on you right there. So I don't run to Mission Control, New York. I don't run to those two positions, which are like the opening plays in the rubber guard. Again, now, if you're punching me, it's a little bit different. It's quite a bit different. I'll be happy to go in there and get those plays. But if we're, you know, if you're a good guard passer and we're in here doing uh, just a regular training session, that's the spot that I'm looking for. I want the overhook and I want the inside space and I want the angle before I start bringing my leg up. Interesting. So you're actually entering into rubber guard from half guard in a lot of situations, because when I think of rubber guard, I mean, most of the the rubber guard examples I've seen are more kind of admittedly old school and traditional 10th planet. And like you said, there's this whole sequence of things you got to cycle through. And I'm not even going to pretend to get the names right. <laughs> but I've often thought of rubber guard as something that you get into from closed guard. You know, you pull someone into closed guard and then you start pulling your own leg up. But I like this idea that you're saying of going from the knee shield, for instance, because that is a pretty logical situation. It's like shooting a triangle from that position almost, where it, it's a much more natural angle for your leg to come up at and a much more natural way to hold a person than, I think, trying to get them in close guard and then trying to pull your own leg over top of their head, which is where I think a lot of the injuries can come up. Yeah, well, and a lot of just, even if you don't get injured, it's just not that effective, you know, to just mm -hmm. be ripping on your leg and hoping to hold this person down until they calm down. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So generally speaking, I don't really use the rubber, again, generally, I don't really use the rubber guard from closed guard. I set it up like if I always have a butterfly hook on my, on my other side, pretty much. I see. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I would ask just in terms of attributes. With the 10th planet system, often you think that this is a system for lanky, flexible people. And I'm sure that that is a stereotype. And I'd love to address that here and figure that out. With rubber guard, are there any attribute limitations around here? Like as an example, I often tell people, look, if you are giving up a hundred pounds, probably not a good idea to start throwing up triangles from bottom guard. Even if you're really good at triangles, you're probably going to wind up regretting it. Are there any similar attribute-based limitations for rubber guard where maybe it, it falls apart if your opponent is too big or if your legs are too short? Or are there ways to adjust for those things? I think there's ways to adjust for most of them. Just, you know, just like with the triangle, you know, the triangle's not the answer for every problem that comes up in jujitsu, but just with the triangle, I think that's the most important submission in grappling, but that doesn't mean it's the answer to every situation or that it's the right tool. You know, if I don't want to draw the short sword when the long sword was the right one to draw. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I think that sometimes people get a little bit myopic about this where they, they want to find a solution that works for every problem, but very rarely does such a thing exist. Solutions are always going to be context dependent. And so I, I think to some extent, that's just the intuitive nature of grappling. You have to sort of feel if it's a good idea to go for this technique at this particular time. And a lot of the time, I, I don't know, I just find based on body dimensions, I can kind of feel in advance if it's a good idea to be, to be throwing up that triangle or if it's going to result in me 
getting stacked. And I can assume that the same thing happens with rubber guard, where probably sometimes you feel like the fit just isn't right here. It's like a bad shoe, right? <laughs> just rubber guard is not the right tool. Yeah, it's just not quite right. Or And, you know, a lot of times that's just dependent on the energy that you're getting off your opponent, too. What has he mm-hmm. done? What did he do in the first three minutes of this role before we got to this position? That can make right. a big difference. I mean, I may feel that I can get to my rubber guard, but something else is is more available. So again, I don't want to ever f- try to force a square peg into a round hole. You know what I mean? I don't want to draw. Nothing works at the wrong time. Now, here's a question regarding the rubber guard. Do you see it as a, a patience-based guard, or is it more of like a rapidly advance into attack mode guard? Is it the kind of guard where if you're going into it, you need to have you know three to five minutes on the clock to work your magic, or is there a relatively quick path to getting submissions? I mean, we talked about the Omoplata already. That one comes to mind for sure. But if someone is going into this, you know, you were talking about early versus late stage aspects of the fight. Is there a time in the match when it's preferable to go to rubber guard, or is it going to be always effective well i think it depends on the context you know there's if i can skip through that mission control new york section and i can just get to that that foot over in front of your face quick off the butterfly guard we call that a flying kung fu move just for the record (laughs) so like say i'm playing butterfly and i catch a good angle on you right i got i got a good angle pitched out already and you try to pull away a little bit while I've got a good angle and a heavy overhook, I can just throw my foot right in front of your face. You know what I mean? And we can be instantly into something deep. Or you could be hunkering down, and you know, I don't want to say stalling, but, you know, playing a nice slow pace in my closed garden, trying to grind me out. And maybe it does turn into a thing where I need like three or four minutes and it's not the right call in that moment. Right, right, right. I would ask then in the context of rubber guard here, Is this a move that you would consider to be a staple? Meaning, is this something that you think everyone should probably bolt into their game, regardless of whether or not they subscribe to the 10th planet system as a whole? Because for me, as an example, I'm not a 10th planet guy, but I have been using lockdown since I was a white belt. And to me, I sort of, and this might be controversial, but I kind of see that as a staple. Because in my mind, it's a very good late stage uh, half guard defense. If everything else has failed, you're smashed on your back, the guy's got a cross face on you. For me, lockdown is often the best option I have to restore to a more comfortable position. And I wonder, is there anything else within the 10th planet system, rubber guard or anything beyond that you feel kind of falls into that bucket of, look, this should be a a staple in the pantheon of fundamentals, just like we talk about things like the Omoplata, for instance. Is there, do you see it at that level or do you see it as more of a specialized thing that really only benefits if you're living inside that system? I think I would view it the same way that one might view leg locks. Do you have to know the rubber guard to be good at jujitsu? Dude, no. You could be a super high-level black belt and know nothing about the rubber guard and never, ever play it. And maybe you even hate it. Okay, no problem. But there's going to be opportunities when that's the easiest and the correct sword to draw, right? And with leg locks, do you need to be a great leg locker in order to be a good black belt? Man, probably not. Nowadays, though, you know, it's starting to find that there's a little more importance in these kind of things than was previously thought. So, yeah, I think that, no, I don't think that the rubber guard has to be a staple. I do think that the truck should be a staple in everyone's game, though. Yeah, yeah. Interesting uh, that you say that, because I kind of assumed you would say that the rubber guard should be a staple. It's very important to my game, my personal game, but I don't expect my students to do what I do, you know. 
Got it. If I can ask, when you bring up the truck, I mean, that's, man, that's a topic for another podcast. I would love to do a deep dive into that specifically. But I got to ask while I got you here, what, what is it about the truck that makes you feel like that should be such a staple? Well, so you come into the gym, you're a brand new, you're going to be defending against back control from your very first class, right? And by the time you hit black belt, you're going to have had someone take your back and you're going to have so many hours logged in just being in that position and surviving. That's part of the game, right? Well, I think of traditional back control, so like a seat belt. I think of that as having the back at the shoulders. I think of the truck as having the back at the hips. And that's a position that very few people spend a lot of time on outside of the 10th planet system. And it's really tricky. It's just another, it's just attacking the whole body while you have the back. Interesting. Interesting. Makes sense. Yeah. I'd love to have you back and explore that in more detail at some point because the truck is a position that I find uh, it has a lot of the same questions that often come up around rubber guard about how to integrate it. Although I think it's, I would say that more people probably generally make use of the truck, whereas rubber guard is, you know, some people do, some people don't, but pretty much everyone will at least study the truck in some capacity. There's Um, all kinds of like, man, that's almost the truck or that's the same thing we would do with the legs laced. You know, you see yeah. Hoffa Mendez comes to mind like, you know, technically, is that the truck? No, but that rolling back take is the same exact thing. Yeah, it's a it's a very dynamic kind of fluid way to get at the back. And there's a lot of things that maybe technically don't fall into that category that are still part of the modern game where you're basically skipping a lot of traditional passing and just trying to get right directly to the person's back. It's kind of like witchcraft, personally. I mean, it always sucks when someone is in your guard and the next thing you know, they're right on your back and you have no idea how they transition through there. So on the topic of the rubber guard, and you mentioned that you don't need to necessarily be an expert in the rubber guard, but you know, you still need to at least be somewhat aware of it. And I would say the main reason for that is because even if you don't want to play the rubber guard, you can't control whether someone else is going to try to play it against you. And I I remember the first time, time this happened to me in my more experienced years, I was doing a drop in at a gym on the other side of the world and just where I am. I mean, I don't train with a lot of rubber guard guys and someone there, I guess, was a rubber guard player and they pulled it on me. And man, I felt like I was stuck there for 10 minutes. It felt like so long. I mean, I I felt like I could keep myself safe mostly, but it is a real struggle to get out a rubber guard once someone gets it on you. It's like, it reminds me of that guard that you get in the gi where you take the person's lapel and you pull it behind their back and you pull them down. It's doing a very similar thing, except that your opponent is using their own leg to clamp you into a guard. And even if you're able to keep yourself safe and deny a submission, it's still very hard to get out of that. So I would ask, you know, if we flip this around and attack this from the other perspective, what do we do to get out of the rubber guard? If someone gets you in there or is in the process of doing it, what is your suggested defense to prevent that from happening? Well, I'm going to try to flatten you as my first movement. Make sure I got to make sure that you don't beat me on the inside space. You've already got the overhook most likely, right? And so you're, you're trying to get into a play. You got your leg. I'm kind of stuck. I can't posture up. I got to flatten you out and make sure I win that inside space. And then from there, I can start to stack you and, you know, make it uncomfortable enough or make it feel fruitless enough that you try to move on. Yeah, this is the experience I've had against rubber guard players is 
that leg clamp is extremely hard to break out of. So often I found the best strategy is to just get into a hunkered position where the other person effectively gives up and moves on to something else because they just don't see it as fruitful anymore. Actually escaping it on your own is very hard to do just because all of the control points are behind you. They're on your back and you can't really realistically reach behind there and unravel the knot from there as it is. So kind of just getting the person pinned to the mat, controlling the inside space, that all makes tons of sense. Awesome. On that note, you brought up something earlier. You were talking about the dead orchard, which I agree is kind of entered into the the public consciousness here. And the way that I think of the dead orchard, I mean, if I have to summarize it through audio for people, it's sort of like a triangle choke, but with both arms inside the triangle. Is that a fair way to describe it? That's exactly what it is. So it doesn't, it's not a choke though. It ends up being just an arm lock, you know, a triangle, double arm triangle, and then you attack the arm on the inside. Right. So in a lot of ways, it's very similar to kind of playing a really, really high guard and going for an arm bar, except the difference is your legs are triangled. Now, the thing that I've always found a little bit challenging about this particular technique is I've got pretty short, stubby legs (laughs) and it makes it hard for me to do stuff like that. I have a hard enough time often just getting a standard triangle. So I can only imagine if you're trying to lock up triangle, not just on an arm and the head, but on two arms and the head, I can imagine that's just going to be that much more difficult if you have short legs. Does this fall into the category of submissions where now there's a leg length factor that matters, or is there still a way that I'm missing to pull this off if you're on the shorter side like I am? So I do think it's a submission and a position that the length of your legs does matter. The flexibility does matter, but it's not the most important factor Uh, because I see people who, you know, aren't like very, don't have very long legs or they're not super flexible and they can pull it off. It's played on the opposite hip of the way that I play the rubber guard or the way that I I described it to you is the omoplata. So imagine my left leg is high and I'm playing the rubber guard with my left leg up on your neck. If I'm playing for my style, I want to be out on my right hip. Right, So facing my opponent over here on the right side. For the dead orchard, it does come from the closed guard, and it's when they stack you and put you on the other hip. So I've got my left leg, but you're pressing me towards my left hip. Make sense? And so now it starts to – my right leg is free, and I use that right leg, and your own like kind of pull your way backwards out. That's what I use to shuck the elbow, shuck your elbow across – and give myself the space to make a nice, clean triangle, like on the top of your neck right there. So the shoulders are got out. It, got it. Makes sense. If I have to lock it around your shoulders, no, I mean, you have to be like crazy long legs to even do that. And then it doesn't even that work that well, right? Yeah, if I can get your shoulders outside the lock, then I don't have to have very long legs to pull it off. But it is a position that it's not one of my specialties. I, I'll do it from time to time. But generally speaking... I play out on the other hip, but man, you see the dead orchard being used at, I mean, a very high black belt level. I think of when Ben Eddy did it to Wilson Hayes, Nathan Orchard has done it just over and over and over again. I mean, there's a lot of good examples of it being used. And so I think probably the dead orchard at this point is the, I don't know how you could even argue it. It's like the best submission that's being used at a high level from the rubber guard. Or Ben Eddy is a specialist at this movie he calls the Hindu Latino. Are you familiar with Ben Eddy? Have you seen him? 
Oh man, that that move it hurts me just to look at. Yes, I I know the move. It is absolutely insane. I'm not even sure how to describe it, but it's kind of like um it it looks sort of like rubber guard crossed with a guillotine choke. And man, that looks like you got to be pretty bendy to do that. Man, so it looks that way, right? I think that that hindulatine requires less flexibility than uh, what I would just call standard rubber guard. I know that sounds crazy, right? I know that sounds insane, but it's really about your shoulder flexibility when you do it well. So, you know, like for a Marcelo team, sometimes if you're depending on your hand position, you can feel that Marcelo team in the back of your shoulder. Mm-hmm. Same thing on this Hindulatine setup. It pulls on the back of that shoulder. So if you don't have flexibility there, that's where you end up feeling it. But I have to tell you, man, I just trained with Ben. I've trained with Ben a lot, but I just trained with him two weekends ago in LA. And I think that that Hindulatine might, this sounds, I know it sounds so crazy and you're going to think I'm an idiot when I say it. Ben Eddie's Hindulatine might be the most efficient grappling technique that has ever been used on me, ever. I've been training for 16 years. I train pretty much every day. And I <laughs> I can't think of anybody who has a, a special thing they do that feels more efficient than that it's unbelievable interesting so i mean when you say efficient what do you mean specifically just that he's able to do that without burning significant amounts of energy or with minimal motion i mean it feels you're dying in there like your blood is being you're strangling to death and you can't you can barely feel him touching you other than the fact that you're controlled it's unreal i know that sounds so stupid (laughs) There's no way Brandon can know what he's talking about, but I, I'm telling you. I've definitely seen it, and it looks gnarly. Like, it looks, although the one thing I will say is it looks almost as uncomfortable for the person doing it as for the person receiving it, just because of the way that your knee gets torqued. But again, there there might be some more witchcraft there that I'm not seeing that makes it actually easier. There is. There's a lot of witchcraft going on right there, and there's a lot of <laughs> trickery. He's a fascinating character, bro. He's a super, super fascinating character. <laughs> and he's used that Hindulatine. He's put, I know for sure I could just name you three black belts that he's put to sleep in competition with that move. Every yeah. time I see him, he's hitting it twice in a tournament. Every time I see him. It looks like it would be just, un- I've never had anyone do it to me, but it looks like it would be just unbelievably tight to have that wrapped up around you. It's ridiculous. So, uh, you know, tying all of this together, I'm just curious to to get your perspective. Why is it that you think the the tenth planet system is still kind of like in a bubble in that capacity? There are, you're right, like there's examples of this where you do see this in high level competition. You know, the Dead Orchard is an example, but. I've always been surprised that there hasn't been more 10th planet integration in the traditional jujitsu competition scene. You don't see at, at high level a lot of people playing rubber guard or a lot of people doing these techniques. And I wonder, why do you think that is? Is it just because of the gi, no gi schism? Or is it because of a rule set thing? Or is it just a viability thing? I'd love to get your opinion on why you think it hasn't uh, taken over more than it currently has. Well, I think leg locks is a good I guess, analogy or comparison. You know, there was a time, and I'm sure you'll, how long you've been training? Uh, about 13 years. Yeah. So you'll remember this very vividly. There was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, that leg locks, quote unquote, did not work. You know what I mean? Yep. I was told by a brown belt back in the early days, he, he straight up told me that if you tap to a leg lock, you're just not good at jujitsu because no one would actually tap to one of those. I mean, it's crazy how much that aspect of the sport has developed and how quickly it developed in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. I, mean, I remember when kicks didn't work in MMA. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but what happened with leg locks? They don't work. But then there's this small subset of guys up in the Northeast that figure out how to make it work. And then they take proof of concept and they stretch it out. And eventually it you know integrates itself into the common vernacular, so to speak. And I think that really we're just now, 10th Planet is just now putting together enough strong competitors to be able to put these kind of things on display for people. And, you know, you're, you've been training 13 years and you're like, man, I'm not that familiar with the rubber guard. If you're not at a 10th planet, who, who are you going to learn these things and learn to believe in them from, you know, most of your rubber guard experience has probably been with people who, you know, they're better than you at it, but they don't know that much. And they're probably a purple belt. You know what I mean? How good is a purple belt? <laughs> Anything? Sorry, purple belts. Sorry. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. I mean, a lot of the people, unless you train with specialists at this stuff, most of the people just that you train with locally who are doing this are going to be dabblers. And like you said, maybe they're competent at these things up to a, a blue or a purple belt level, but you're not going to be able to pull Or off. even a hobbyist in the room black belt level. Yeah. But to be able to pull it off on, you know, Gary Tonin is a whole different scenario. Like the Darce Choke works great, right? It works at the highest level. It just tapped Gary Tonin. But let's me or you try to tap Gary Tonin with a Darce, and we'll leave thinking it doesn't work. Well, this raises interesting questions about what actually makes a move work or not. Because I think that we all think, just based on our training, that while some moves are just inherently better than others, and the fundamentals are their fundamentals for a reason, and we train them because they're known to work. And I wonder how much of that is actually true. I wonder how much of this turns out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy, where these things become fundamentals because there's so much focus on them that so many people get good at them, and because that's part of every one's a game that's just what gets used i mean we had a conversation with robert deagle a few episodes ago and he was challenging the way that people think about what it means for a technique to be high percentage in jujitsu and how most people probably don't truly understand this and you know it does make me wonder you know there's a lot of chokes for example that were in the judo canon that never really became mainstream in jujitsu we just decided in jujitsu that the cross collar choke and the triangle choke and that these were going to be the things we took from judo but, you know, is there a parallel universe somewhere where jujitsu is just being dominated by like Ezekiel chokes and stuff just because for some reason that's the thing people adopted and trained? And it really does make you wonder. I mean, leg locks are a great example. The leg lock game was very primitive until it wasn't, right? Popularity was the thing that stimulated the leg lock economy, so to speak. And then once there were enough people doing it, now suddenly you start to see real innovation and you start to see a, a wide variety of people and therefore a lot more high-level athletes doing this stuff as well. And it kind of makes me wonder, is that all it takes for something like the 10th Planet system to catch on? Is it just a matter of there hasn't been that groundswell moment yet? Maybe that's all that needs to happen. Well, you know, I think it's it's like this, man. If there's a thousand jiu-jitsu players from all different associations and all different backgrounds, how many of them are 10th Planet players? 10%? Maybe not even. I'm, I don't know off the top of my head, but I mean... It, but just, you know, let's just call it 10%. Well, only 10% of the total pool is playing these positions and, and doing the research and development on them. Now, how many of the great athletes are in that 10% pool? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, I think leg locks went through the same revolution. None of us could believe that leg locks worked until we felt it 
and felt the truth of it, you know? Yeah. But, you know, talking about, like you brought up about what are the fundamentals, maybe we've misplaced our idea of what the fundamentals are, or maybe we just fell in love with these particular moves and started calling them fundamentals because they worked for the people who were teaching at the time. But I think that the fundamentals aren't a set of moves. I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, but like, I don't think an arm lock is a fundamental. I don't think a bridge and roll is fundamental. I think those are beginner level techniques, but I think the fundamentals of jujitsu are the ideas and the philosophies, the principles of it. The fundamentals are balance. The fundamentals are base, leverage, timing, perseverance. And when I, you know, leverage, when I can take those things and I have a deep understanding of the fundamental principles of jujitsu, I can apply those fundamentals to any moment in real time. And that's how you end up becoming creative and, you know, developing your own voice, so to speak. Absolutely. Brilliant point. Brilliant points. And, you know, just looking back at my own journey, I remember when I started out as a white belt, I was instructed in a very old school technique focused way where there was no talk of these bigger ideas or bigger concepts. It was more you come in and the coach picks a move for the day and you just kind of drill that. And there's no real discussion about why, you know, how, why is it that this works? How is the body supposed to move? None of that. It's more just bang out a bunch of reps and eventually you'll get good. But man, if I had a time machine and I could go back in time and teach myself knowing what I know now, I would certainly throw that all out from a fundamentals perspective. I would not start with white belts by teaching them about what a cross collar choke is or what an arm bar is. I mean, those things, they're good, they're techniques, but they're applications of bigger ideas. I would start off, like you said, explaining how do you move your body? How do you know when your body is safely aligned? How do you generate force? How do you absorb force? How do you not get tipped over? What is a frame? Um, (laughs) What is a frame? I did not, no one actually explained to me what a frame was until I was a black belt. I was just, you know, yeah, it kind of intuitively makes sense, right? You think about it, okay, it's a thing you stick out, but no one explained the physics to me and no one explained to me that like, look, a frame is not necessarily always good because it depends on the angle. It depends on what the frame is. It depends on the incoming force. There's so many factors. And, you know, if I could go back in time, and retrain my white belt self based on just understanding those big ideas, then when I was presented with things like rubber guard, I probably would have been more receptive to it because I would have understood how to integrate those things in a more intelligent way. When I tried rubber guard as a white belt, I remember trying it and I basically grabbed my own leg and tried to pull it behind my head and I almost dislocated my knee and I thought, you know what? That is not for me. But honestly, that's not a problem with rubber guard. That's a problem with my idiot white belt self having no idea how to safely position my body. If you were to put me in that position now, I could do that without hurting my Myself. And I wonder if maybe that focus on these nitty gritty details is just a gross misunderstanding of what fundamentals should really be. It maybe should be really more a discussion of ideas and concepts. I think so, because I think that balance, leverage, weight distribution, base, timing, these things can be expressed through any technique, no matter how crazy it is. And when I focus on, so, okay, Brandon, I'm having trouble with my rubber guard. I'm having trouble finishing this arm bar here, Brandon. Can you help me? Okay, when I go to help you, I don't say, ah, yes, here's the problem. Put your foot here, put your hand here, drive your hip. I say, how can you improve your leverage from this position? How can you improve your balance from this position? You understand what I'm saying? Instead of trying to direct you through these steps that 
may or may not be the steps in the order that you need them in real time. Let's address the fundamental issues. If you're having trouble with this arm bar and you improve your weight distribution, the technique improves. And now we can take whatever we're working on tonight, we can take the wide principles and apply our knowledge that we gained through the filter of the arm lock to the gross overall jujitsu. So no matter what we're working on in class tonight, if we're working from a principle-based standpoint, all of our jujitsu improves. We may be working on mount escapes, but my understanding of leg locks improved because what we were really doing was understanding leverage better tonight. Well, it totally makes sense. And now I'm curious. I mean, if I'm a white belt and I show up at your gym, it's my first day ever doing jujitsu. I, I don't know. I saw early UFC and I saw, I listened to Joe Rogan and I saw rubber guard and I decided this is the school I want to be. This is the system I want to learn, but I don't know anything about jujitsu. I just show up. Right. So I am a, I am an unsculpted ball of clay for you to do with as you will. How do you, I mean, how do you teach me as a, a new student when you explain these principles? What, what do ideas and concepts and principles look like when viewed from the 10th planet lens? Cause I, I mean, I've talked to a lot of other people about it, but I'm really curious to know if there's a, a different way that you guys explain things that hasn't yet been discussed? Well, you know, I can't speak for everybody. I can just speak for the way that I run my academy, you know. So I'd hate to like say, well, this is how we do it in 10th Planet. But I'll tell you what I do is we just will work on a particular subset for a month. So say like this month, we're going to do deep half guard, right? We're going to have a curriculum laid out for the month. We're going to do a, a certain flow each day to warm up, and then we're going to move on to the 80-20 from there, and then we'll go into the next steps from there, right? But when I go through these things, I take the time to explain why does the hand go here. It's just five seconds of explanation, you know what I mean? But I think most people are uh, – this is mean, I guess, but I think most people are just lazy in their teaching, to be honest, or they just don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of it, too, is just traditionalism. You know, people people teach the way that their instructor taught them, and it's just assumed to work because, of course, look, jiu-jitsu produces good athletes. Most people who stick with jiu-jitsu are going to eventually get good at it. So I think a lot of people just look at it and say, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the reality is there is a better way. I mean, I remember talking to my coach one time and he specifically explained that he knows that the way my brain works is I won't figure anything out. I won't understand it at all unless you explain why. If you just show me the steps, I just don't get it. But if you explain why, then I can kind of piece it together in my head and it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, so my wife is a black belt also. We've been training together like literally from the first day. We started on the same day together. But she doesn't want to hear you describe it at all. Me, I could sit, like I listen to your podcasts all the time. I I could sit down and just listen to somebody. I'm much more interested in how you arrived at this conclusion because I, that's going to help me process it much much more simply than Brandon put your foot here, Brandon put your hand here and just do it over and over. Right. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that there's and I don't even know if this is a a personality thing. I think most people, whether they whether they know it or not, would probably benefit from a little more context in their teaching. And I think that's a, a really good example. So I would ask then if we're talking about the rubber guard specifically, how do you break that down in terms of things like concepts and leverage? Like where are the where's the force? Where's the levers? How would you explain that to someone if instead of just saying, well, grab your leg and pull it over your head? Like, how do you explain those concepts that you talked about earlier when you were explaining the rubber guard to a new student? Well, so instead of the point being to get my foot in front of the guy's face, why don't we just focus on 
controlling the guy and creating good dominant angles. And then we can start to bring the foot over the face instead of slamming it in there. You know, that's the main thing. Like, what am I supposed to be doing from the rubber guard? You need to control these two ideas here. Control that overhook with a good angle, hug the knee with a good angle, and win the inside space. Well, these, especially the win the inside space idea, that's kind of applicable across the board. So if you can master that from the within the filter of the rubber guard, it's also going to ha- help your butter half. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the thing I love about that explanation, too, is that it doesn't prescribe a solution. Nowhere in that explanation do you say the goal is the rubber guard. What you said was the goal is to control your opponent by getting to a dominant angle and ultimately owning the inside space, right? And by not prescribing a solution, you prevent your students from getting narrow-minded. Because often, this is a problem that I had a lot early in my journey. You know, if the instructor said today was triangle day, I would be doing everything I could to try to get a triangle, even if that was the worst possible idea based on the position I was in. But you get tunnel vision because you have this goal in your head and it's the wrong goal. You should not be so attached to one particular move or submission. You should be attached to the ideas of having control of your opponent in general. And if you're focused on those principles instead of trying to prescribe a result, then when your student gets to that position, they've got more options because instead of trying to force the rubber guard when it's not there, they can choose right? They can omoplata, they can go to Sean Williams guard, they can do a lot of things and they've got an open mind because they're not married to the solution before they even get there. Yes. I'm not here to prescribe you a medicine to take every day. I'm here to encourage you to live in a better way, to live more healthfully. Does that make sense? So that's what I'm looking for with these, you know, these principles and playing like Brandon, I'm brand new. What should I be working on? How many times have you heard that question, bro? What should I be working on? My answer is, well, what makes you want to be here to train tomorrow? What excites you the most? Like, you're a white belt. You suck at everything, right? So then just grab something <laughs> and start yeah. putting some something that excites you and makes you want to do the extra work, you know, and start working on it. So I'm not here to tell you what to do and how to drill and all of these things. I'm happy to help you. I'm happy to give you some as much guidance as you'd like. But what I really want is for you to do what excites you because the most important thing is that you log hours on the mat, right? You know, not just any kind of, but fruitful hours. The most important thing is that you log hours on the mat. And the best way to get you to spend extra time and to spend more hours is to let you follow your the thing that makes you happy. And I think as a result of that, we have a really interesting room here. You know, it's very, none of our black belts play the same game, you know? So like Matt Scaff, you've had Scaff on, right? I think yep, I heard yep. that episode. His game looks nothing like mine, but he start, he's been here for every belt rank. He was here as a white belt and he's here now as a first degree black belt, you know? But our games look nothing alike because whatever, ex- whatever makes you want to train, big dog, what's going to make you show up excited to be here tomorrow? Let's just work on that. And that's a really interesting myth bust right there, because I think most people, when they think of what does a 10th planet gym look like, right? They're going to assume that it's a bunch of no-gi guys wearing really colorful rash guards who may or may not be intoxicated at the moment under the influence of something who are trying to basically tie their legs around their head. I'm not here to deny that particular (laughs) part of the myth. 
you know? <laughs> but what you're bringing up, though, is that, look, you've got a widely diverse group of people all under the same affiliation there who develop different styles. So I, I think it's worth pointing out that, like, look, there, it's, it's not as homogenous as maybe people think it is. Yes, there are, there are staples of the 10th planet system, things that are known just historically because of where they derived from. But I, I think it really speaks to just the cross-pollination of jujitsu that you guys don't all just train the same, right? Everyone does wind up kind of becoming their own unique person, which is, I think, one of my favorite things about jujitsu that you kind of only really mentally unlock once you get to black belt, which is that it really is, I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, Mr. Miyagi or something, but it really is a form of self-expression, right? It is an art in that sense. And as you get more experienced, being able to choke out fools kind of takes a backseat in importance to how do I express myself and make an impact and make a contribution based on the way that I train? Yeah, I mean, it's martial arts, right? It has to be mm-hmm. martial, but it has to be art when it, it's an expression. When jujitsu is truly expressed in its highest form, it's a expression of self. It's a creation in the moment. You know what I'm saying? I'm not sitting down and playing guitar and I'm playing it exactly the way that Jimmy Page played it. Mm-hmm. You know? Playing guitar, I'm inspired by Jimmy Page, but I'm my own guitar player. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, good that you bring that up because I've I had a lot of conversations recently with people where I've asked very high-level people, how do you choose what to work on? Right. Because I think for most hobbyists or even most, most people who are competitive, probably, but you know, they're not necessarily, they don't have their own team for competition. I think for a lot of people, they take prescriptions from the coach in terms of, okay, what am I working on? It's what the coach chose today. So I always ask higher level people, how do you decide what you put into your game? And the answer I often get is like, look, yes, you can study the competitive landscape and you can study tape and you can study what works and what submissions are being applied most frequently in comp you can do all of that but to some extent you also have to want to do it and you have to enjoy it and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're choosing techniques that are statistically the getting the most wins in competition to some extent it is still a form of self-expression and you're going to be a lot more engaged in what you're doing if it's something that speaks to you so to some extent we shouldn't poo-poo people because they're training things that you know that are not necessarily winning gold medals at the moment to some extent we should be encouraging that exploratory nature because in addition to allowing people to express themselves which is a big part of this That's also how innovation happens, by trying things that other people aren't doing or by striking out on your own path. And I I do feel, and Deagle was talking about this too, that there is this obsessive focus right now on looking at what the top 1% are doing and trying to basically carbon copy their game. Exactly. And although I understand the motivation behind that, there is an aspect of innovation and creativity that you ignore if you're trying to play a statistical game when it comes down to what kind of techniques you practice. Yeah, I agree with that. I'll tell you the most important thing. This is the most important lesson I've learned in all my martial arts training is something I learned as a blue belt. So I don't know if you're ever like a big jujitsu forums guy, but I used, especially when I was a white and blue belt, I was all up in the forums, dude. I was on the underground and, you know, we had this thing called 10th Planet Watch back in the day before Eddie even had his website. And I was on there and there was a discussion that came up about the lockdown. And somebody else was, somebody from, uh, I can't remember even what association they were from, but they were talking about the half guard. And uh, somebody, another like 10th Planet Blue or Purple Belt or somebody like that chimes in. They're like, yo, well, we play the lockdown. 
you know, and there, and it just becomes this, well, it's half guard, lockdown, half guard, lockdown. <laughs> and one of the other guys, you may have heard of this guy. He's an ADCC veteran. His name's Amir Alam. He's one of Eddie's black belts, phenomenal wrestlers, incredible competitor. He chimes in and he goes, the lockdown is not the 10th planet gospel. An open mind is the 10th planet gospel. And Eddie really, really exemplifies that in the way that he handles all of us. You know, I felt like when I got my black belt from Eddie, that was him saying, hey, listen, you did everything that I expected of you. Now fly, little bird. Go become your own man, you know? <laughs> and uh, that, to me, that's the most important part of what we're up to at 10th Planet is an open mind as the 10th Planet gospel. Well, let me follow up then and ask, you know, we've been talking about the rubber guard. We've been talking about the broader 10th planet system and philosophy as a whole. If someone wants to get introduced to this stuff, whether they be brand new to jujitsu or if they're a listener to this podcast, more likely they already have some experience, but they just want to understand that game plan and that strategy and that style. Are there any resources you recommend as a good starting point for people who want to start exploring rubber guard and the related systems? Yeah, I mean... The best source to learn from is Eddie, but if, you know, some people have an aversion to Eddie for whatever reason, and listen, there are a variety of reasons that you could (laughs) have an aversion to Eddie, but for me, that's my guy, you know, but if you want to learn some of that stuff from other sources, I've got an instructional in the rubber guard with BJJ Fanatics that's done great. We sold a ton of copies of that. I've got my own website where we do deep dives and then we have weekly film study and all that kind of stuff. It's brandonmc.ninja. Or if you're just like, yo, I'd much rather have some free stuff. Just go find me on YouTube and I'll share everything I know with you. Sounds good. And as always, I'll put the links in the show notes there just so everyone can grab that stuff quickly. But Brandon, I think that was awesome. Any closing thoughts on the rubber guard or or 10th planet as a whole? Anything you want to bring up that we haven't talked about yet? No, man, just uh, don't do that 10th planet stuff, man. You blow your knee out, you know, (laughs) stay away from the potheads. Well, you've inspired me, man. I'm going to go back onto the mats and I'm going to try to tie my leg around my head and choke out some fools. Um, Although I am not yet brave enough to try the Hindu routine. I am significantly worried that if I do that, my leg will never go back into the position that it was before. But maybe that's just practice required. (laughs) You may be onto something. I don't know. Well, awesome. And of course, for those who who follow us, they probably know that if you like this, the next best step is probably to check out BJJ Mental Models Premium. Right now, we're pushing, we're getting close to 50 hours of educational content on there. We're pushing out some new instructionals with Andrew Wiltsey, Margot Ciccarelli, John Thomas. So some great stuff on there. It's an amazing value if you ask me. Uh, The first week is free, so you can check it out. And if you don't like it, no obligation. But definitely recommend you give it a try. Premium.bjjmentalmodels.com is the place to do it. We've also got a, like an all-star coaching team on there, so you can send us your footage to review and we'll break it down in probably more detail than you ever wanted to hear. But the general feedback is that it's been an extremely helpful service. We got hundreds of people on there, so I please would suggest if you haven't already checked out the free trial, give it a go, premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. Thanks a lot, Brandon. That was fantastic, man. I greatly appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time, and I feel personally like I learned a lot. So thanks so much for coming on here and sharing all of this with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure, man. I, I love jujitsu more than anything in the whole world. So all you got to do is just wind me up and I'll talk until you tell me to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> You're like one of those little toys. I feel like I turned the thing on your back and now, you know, I got about an hour out of you before I got to roll and turn it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about right. 
Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, man. And of course, to everyone who listens, thanks to you as well. Really, truly appreciate it. Every week, having everyone here paying attention means a lot to me. Thanks a lot. And we'll talk to you all next week.